Uh, We're going to look at Colossians chapter 1, just verse 23. Uh, If you remember last week, we did verses 21 and 22. Um, There's one more verse in this this kind of little portion of Paul's letter, uh, and there's actually a lot going on in this verse. So if you have a Bible, please do turn to Colossians 1, and let's read from 21 again. So we'll read what we looked at last week, and then we'll add verse 23 on the end. So here's what he says. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Uh, Now, whether or not you have ever flown before, you've probably heard of some airline slogans, the sort of taglines that they use to advertise their airline. Uh, Maybe you've heard some of these. It pays to fly. The world's favorite airline. The way to fly doing what we do best, making the sky the best place on earth. And then one of the best, and I think most reassuring of all time, for slogans for an airline is this one, we take you all the way. (laughs) We take you all the way, which at one and the same time is very reassuring and a very strange strap line, as if there are other airlines out there that won't quite take you all the way. They'll take you some of the way, and then they'll open the cargo bay doors and they'll throw you out. It is, however, okay, a bit strange for an airline, but it is, however, I think, a brilliant strap line or slogan when applied to the gospel. The gospel takes you all the way. And that, in a nutshell, is what this morning's verse is all about. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is like an aircraft that categorically promises us to take us all of the way there. It promises that not only will you and I be from the very moment we step on board, reconciled to God, holy, blameless, and above reproach, as we saw last week. But it also promises this same gospel will transport us safely all the way to our heavenly destination. The gospel is the safest way to fly. It is the only way to fly. The gospel will take us all the way home. And so this morning, we're going to explore this one verse under three headings. Three slightly quirky headings, I'll admit. I hope you'll forgive me for making them a bit unusual. But we're going to run with this gospel airline imagery, and I'm hoping it will help us grasp Paul's message here even more clearly this morning. So here are my three points. Uh, These should come up as well. There we go. We're going to hear, first of all, instructions on how to stay on the gospel airplane. Secondly, we'll have a warning not to jump out of the plane mid-flight. And then I'm going to suggest four things that might tempt us to jump out along the way. So that's where we're going. First of all, how to stay on the gospel aeroplane. Now, unlike all of the complex uh, rigmarole that an air stewardess will take you through when you start off your flight, and they'll point out seven different exits, and as if you need more than one, they show you the seatbelt, they inflate the life vest, they blow the little whistle, or they pretend to blow the whistle. Uh, They might tell you how to assume the brace position. 
Well, in, in spite of all of that complex rigmarole, the instructions for staying on the gospel airplane are very simple. Have a look again at what Paul says. Continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Now, the first and the last part of Paul's words there are really like two sides of the same coin. So he talks about the faith and the hope of the gospel. Faith here is not so much a reference to the Colossians' own personal trust in Jesus. It's first and foremost a reference to the concrete message of good news that they've heard. And maybe you've spotted this before as you've read through the New Testament. But over 30 times in the New Testament, this phrase, the faith, is used this way. It's used to refer to the actual objective content of the gospel. So a few examples if we can get them up on screen. There we go. Um, Galatians 1.23, Paul is described as preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. In Philippians 1.27, he encourages the Philippians to be of one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then he encourages Timothy to be trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Later on, he also describes those who profess false teaching, who teach false teaching, as those who have swerved from the faith. So the faith and the gospel are basically one and the same thing here. Paul is instructing them to continue in the truths of the gospel. He's instructing them to keep the faith, to keep on placing their hope in the gospel. And then we have, look again, these three words in between that, that tell them in what manner they should do this in what manner they should keep the faith. He says, stable, steadfast, not shifting. And the first two of those are relevant to our first heading. The first two of those tell us how to stay on the gospel aeroplane by continuing in the faith, stable and steadfast. Now, to be stable literally means to be established and well-grounded in the truth. It means to know the truth that sets us free, to know it really well. It is, as Paul writes in Ephesians 4, to be mature in the faith and in the knowledge of Christ so that we're no longer like children being, he says, tossed to and fro by every uh, wind of false doctrine. This, is, this to be stable is to be firmly understanding and firmly believing the gospel, to have strong foundations that go deep down into Christ to have a faith that is fixed and anchored to the message about him, to have our feet safely planted on the gospel. That's what it means to be stable. It's a word that ought to leave us asking ourselves, well, just how well do I know the gospel? How could I get to know it better? Am I growing in my knowledge of what God in Christ has done for me? How could I grow in gospel maturity and gospel stability year by year. That's the kind of questions this word stable should provoke in us. And then the next word, steadfast, kind of goes with it. And that speaks of remaining loyal to those truths, of holding fast to them and treasuring them, of continually digging down deeper into their riches, not being distracted from them or lured away by the empty promises of other treasures elsewhere. The word steadfast actually in the Greek comes from uh, the word to sit, to stay put. 
It's a bit like the uh, great dragon Smaug in The Hobbit, sitting on his hoard of treasure, but obviously with uh, more positive connotations here than that. But same idea, sitting on the treasure of the gospel. And what both these words, stable and steadfast, make clear is that Paul isn't encouraging us to each start our own new building project, like the world so often encourages us to do, to dig out our own foundations and each seek to find our own meaning for our lives. This isn't about going on a journey of self-discovery. This isn't about everyone finding their own foundations to build their life upon. This is about continuing in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's about recognizing that when God saved us in that very moment, he planted us into Christ and onto Christ, and we're to remain rooted in him. We're to sit on the gospel. We're to live in the gospel, to be stubbornly unbudgeable, immovable in every way from the message of the gospel. Now, Everyone in the building trade understands the importance of good foundations and of buildings that don't move. I remember a few years back, probably more than a few years back, maybe some of you remember, when Cabot Circus was being built. Does anyone remember that? Some people. Um, I remember how long they took to dig the foundations. I, I remember distinctly sitting on the top floor of a double-decker bus and so able to kind of look over the fence and look down, and I was amazed at how deep they were digging. Uh, this massive pit to go down deep to build the foundations for this uh, pretty impressive uh, shopping center that was to come. And I didn't appreciate at the time why it was taking so long or why they'd have to go so deep, but now you look at Cabot Circus, you look at all that's there, the great structure, all of those buildings kind of towering pretty high, and seeing that, you appreciate, don't you, in a fresh way, why it needs such deep and solid foundations. Now imagine if they built those buildings, if they built shopping centers with as shallow foundations as building a house of cards. Do you remember the last time you built a house of playing cards? Maybe some of you have done it recently with your kids uh, or just to entertain yourself on a Sunday afternoon. Do you remember the absolute stillness and calm that you had to maintain in order to build it and to keep it upright? You, you knew that the merest puff of wind the merest nudge of the table would bring it all crashing down. Remember how frustrated you were when someone came along and they did nudge it and they all came falling down. That is a picture of what happens when our lives are built on anything else but Christ and his gospel. It's like building a house of cards. It might hold up and be a, a, a pleasant distraction for a short time, but the moment any kind of breeze comes or the moment the table is knocked by the uh, a tr tremor of a trial, it's then that we find out just how fragile a life we've been building if we haven't been building on this sure foundation of Christ. And if good foundations are really important to buildings that maybe at most are going to last a few hundred years, how much more important are good foundations for the life of a person whom God has made to live forever? How much more important it must be then to make sure our lives begin to be built on this sure and steady foundation and then to make sure we keep building there, that we keep building on the foundation of the gospel all of our lives. Remember the story that Jesus told of the wise man who built his house upon the rock and the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. 
Paul is wanting his readers to keep on building their house upon the solid foundation of Christ, on the rock, on the unchanging truth of his words and his gospel, and not on the shifting sands of false teaching or any other seemingly easier or shinier looking thing. The truth is there's only one safe place for you and I to build our lives, only one place to keep building our lives, and that is on the gospel, on the solid rock of Christ, because he alone can take us all the way. To put it another way, the only sure way to get to heaven is by getting on and staying on the gospel aeroplane to keep trusting in the good news about Jesus, to sit stable and steadfast, not shifting from it, not thinking about jumping out of the plane or even trying to transfer to another airline once we're halfway across the ocean. No, no, no. We want to sit fast. And that brings us to our second heading this morning. The second thing that we see Paul doing in this passage, he issues two clear, uh, subtle warnings not to abandon the gospel. Two warnings not to jump out of the plane mid-flight. So our second heading this morning, don't jump out of the plane. Don't jump out of the plane. You see the first, first place we see this warning is in those words, not shifting. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Paul's already encouraged them positively to be stable and steadfast in the faith. Now he's warning them sort of negatively, not to shift from their hope in the gospel. And this word shift speaks in particular of being dissuaded, of being discouraged or diverted or deterred or distracted. And this is no idle warning because I'm guessing, I'm sure we all know this, the Christian life is full of troubles and temptations all along the way. Things that might persuade us to think about turning back from following Christ, Obstacles that might discourage or deter us from continuing to trust in him. And worldly treasures that might divert us or distract us from realizing we already have all that we need in him. Now we're going to think about a few more concrete examples of those when we get to our third and final heading this morning. But if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, whether you've read the adult version or one of the brilliant kids' versions... Just think about all the troubles that Christian meets on the road to the celestial city. All those things that threaten to divert him and shift him from his hope in the gospel. The Christian life is littered with these kind of obstacles that might make it tempting to leave the path that Christ has set us on, especially if we don't have our wits about us, especially if we're not looking out to see, remember what's already been promised us in Christ, what's already ours in him. Paul, in this verse, really wants the Colossians to have their spiritual wits about them. He wants them to resolve to let nothing shift them from their confidence in Christ. He wants them to resolve to let nothing dampen or dilute their certainty that they've already been filled with all fullness in him. He doesn't want them to be moved. And the Colossians actually knew pretty vividly what it was to be shifted and moved. Apparently, Uh, Historians say that probably just a year or two before they received this letter, their town was shaken by a series of really quite devastating earthquakes. They knew what it was to be damagingly shifted and moved, to see homes destroyed and lives lost to the physical effects of an earthquake. Paul doesn't want them to experience the spiritual equivalent of that. 
of that kind of devastation, something which will surely happen to them if they move away from their hope in Christ. He, he wants them to remain earthquake-proof, to keep holding fast to their hope in the gospel. And just like those words stable and steadfast, uh, this phrase, not shifting, is again a call to intentionally stay put, to hold on gladly to what we've already received, not moving away from the glad tidings of the gospel, not taking ourselves somewhere where we're out of earshot of it, where we go days or weeks without hearing it, not taking our lives and deciding to go and build them elsewhere on another foundation. Or, to return to our original illustration, it's not jumping mid-flight out of the gospel aeroplane. And all of this is reinforced by a second loving word of warning. In the opening words of this verse, have a look at those words. If indeed, if indeed you continue. Now, what are, what are we to make of these two words, if indeed? At first glance, they might appear rather troubling. Is Paul introducing now a question of doubt about his readers? Like, he's not actually sure they will continue in the faith. Maybe he's not sure they have what it takes to persevere and hold fast to the gospel. What we saw last week was incredibly encouraging, reminding us of all that God had done for us in Christ. It seemed like it was all God's work. Is he now suggesting that, that it's the Colossians' work? It really depends on them again? Well, not only would that cut against his tone of assurance throughout so much of this letter, not only would it cut against the very message of the gospel itself, but it's also not reflected in the actual words that Paul chooses to use here. In the original Greek, this phrase, if indeed, is not an expression of doubt, but an expression of the utmost confidence. All the commentators agree, this phrase, if you were sort of fleshing it out, would actually be translated, if indeed you continue, and I'm sure you will. That's the idea it carries. If, you, if indeed you continue, and I'm sure you will. It's certainly true that holding fast to the gospel, us holding on to the gospel, is an essential part of the Christian life. It's one of the marks of a true believer that we will keep holding on to Christ. But Paul is also certain that every one of his believing readers will indeed keep on believing. Paul believes in the perseverance of the saints. That once God gives you the gift of faith, once you come to believe, your faith in Christ will persevere. The, the pilot light of your faith will not be blown out because God himself will sustain it in you. The one who lit it will keep it alight, even if sometimes it's barely flickering. He will keep your faith going until the very end, until that day when finally we won't need faith anymore because we will see him with our very eyes. But until that day, the one who gave us our faith will keep our faith in him alight and burning. So why then, let's ask the question, why does Paul give them a warning then if that's the case? If he's sure they'll continue, why give the warning? If God promises to sustain our faith, why do we need to be warned to keep trusting Christ and the gospel? Well, it's because warnings like these are one of the main means that God so generously uses to sustain our faith. It's one of the key things he uses to keep us trusting and believing 
God is at work within us right now this morning. It's so easy to forget that, isn't it, on a Sunday morning, uh, especially as we sit under his word. We can just feel like I'm just sat in a room and sometimes my mind drifts off and sometimes it comes back again. God is at work right at this very moment. As we listen to this verse, he is at work in you, sustaining and strengthening your faith. He's at work giving us new resolve to keep going through these words of gentle, loving caution. Continue in the faith. Don't shift from the gospel. And again, none of what Paul is writing here is about our own efforts. Verse 23 is not about our works and efforts. It's about our dependence. It's about what, it's about what and who we place our trust in. Remember, Paul is writing to people that are already on the gospel aeroplane, to people who've already been reconciled to God in Christ, to people who've already put their trust in Jesus to take them all the way to their heavenly home. And so this, this phrase, if indeed you continue, is, is simply the stewardess reminding us once we're already in the air that if we stay on the plane for the whole flight, we will most certainly touch down safely in our heavenly destination. All we need to do is stay on the gospel aeroplane to keep trusting in Christ the pilot rather than decide madly, actually, do you know what? I'm going to jump out halfway over the Atlantic and I'm going to start flapping my arms and I'm going to try and make the rest of the journey on my own. No. Let's not do that. And again, Paul has the utmost confidence that we will stay on board especially with these reminders ringing in our ears that Christ is an all-sufficient saviour, that gospel airways promises to take us all the way home. So hopefully we're reassured, even more assured than we were when we arrived here this morning because God is at work to assure us. Before we finish, let's ask an important question. Uh, so for a third and final point, Let's think about what things are there that threaten to distract us? What things might rob us of our assurance or our confidence on the journey? What things might take our eyes off the pilot or even make us consider jumping out of the plane? Now, in many ways, this is what the rest of Colossians is about. It's especially what Colossians chapter 2 is about. But I thought it would be helpful for us to just touch on a few here and now this morning. Things that might entice us away from depending on Christ and slowly shift our hope away from the gospel. Uh, these aren't in the text here, but here are what I think are the four most common things that might tempt us to jump out. So third and final heading, four temptations to jump. The first of them is pride, also known as conceit and arrogance or narcissism or self-admiration. Pride, left unchecked, is an age-old gospel diluter in the Christian's heart. It dilutes the gospel within our hearts. And the problem with pride is it's really subtle. It can grow like a hidden cancerous growth slowly and secretly over time. Maybe we started out our Christian life with absolute dependence on the grace of God in Christ. We knew there was Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. It was all about Jesus for us in the beginning and what God had given to us in him. But maybe slowly over time we became a little bit more self-confident. We started to think, well, I'm doing an okay job as a Christian and 
Well, now I'm doing a pretty good job as a Christian. Perhaps we began to pray out loud at the prayer meeting and others said that they were encouraged. Perhaps we gave more in the offering and we commended ourselves for our generosity. Perhaps we led a Bible study or preached a sermon or brought a contribution and started to think that we might be a cut above some other Christians. We started to think that others really ought to be taking notice of what we're doing, taking notice of us. The fallout in our lives from unchecked, unaddressed pride can be wide and varied, but one thing it will do without a doubt is lure us away from maintaining all our hope in the gospel. Pride lures us away from the gospel. Rampant pride will rob us of gospel delight. It will cheat us out of gospel joy. It will inevitably diminish our view of Jesus. But there's a flip side. The flip side to pride and self-confidence and self-admiration is despair. Thinking we're so guilty and so worthless as Christians that God can't possibly forgive me. Thinking that even God himself is not gracious enough or mighty enough to be able to do any work in me. Spurgeon wonderfully addressed these twin dangers of pride on the one hand and despair on the other when he wrote this. And this should come up on the screen as well for us. Here's what he said, Satan does not mind which way you get off the rock. Whether it is by jumping up or by jumping down, it is all the same to him, so long as you leave the rock of your salvation. Many there are that go up in a balloon of conceit, while others are ready to roll down the steeps of despondency and despair. But be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, either one way or the other. The least sin ought to make you humble, but the greatest sin ought not to make you despair. If you are even now as big a sinner as any 50 men rolled into one, Christ can save you readily. Nay, has saved you if you put your trust in him. But on the other hand, if you presume that you are not guilty or despairingly say, I am guilty, but I dare not believe that he can forgive me, you are in either case moved away from the hope of the gospel. May eternal mercy keep you hourly penitent and believing, for repentance and faith walk on either side of a Christian till he enters the pearly gate. We wage war on these twin temptations of pride and despair when we keep our eyes fixed on Christ, in repentance and faith, when we refuse to shift in either direction from our hope in the gospel. So there's two, and I've got two more. The third one, the third one that can distract us and tempt us away from our hope in the gospel is false teaching. False teaching is gospel poison. It is gospel poison. Especially any teaching that encourages us to depend on ourselves rather than depend on Christ. As someone once wrote, if you listen to any teaching which puts your working and your doing into the place of Christ... You are drinking in error. And we live in a world today, don't we, that's not only full of error, but is, is surrounding us with the most easily and accessible, enticing fountains from which to consume that error. It's like there are drinking fountains full of error at every turn, tempting us and enticing us to drink from them every hour of every day. So in books and articles, on YouTube and social media, 
On the TV and the radio, on Twitter and in the news, our culture is filled with truth claims that are so often contrary to the gospel. And we, we just need to be alert to the fact that we're, we're potentially handling toxic substances when we listen to them and engage with them. Now, I'm not suggesting we switch off from them altogether, though I'm sure we would all be much healthier and happier Christians if we cut down on what we're drinking in. But most importantly, we need to handle them with the utmost discernment and care. We need to remember that the worst kind of false teaching actually is the subtle kind. The kind that says, we're not going to try and stop you hoping in Jesus. No, no, no. We're not going to touch what you believe there. But wouldn't you also like to expand your portfolio? Wouldn't you like to hope in this thing or this thing or that thing over there as well? Wouldn't you like to bring these things in alongside Jesus? No, says Paul. Don't do that. Continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Perhaps you've also heard it said, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It is knowing the difference between right and almost right. That's what discernment is. We're surrounded in our culture by this ocean of false teaching, and we we need to take the utmost care that we're not actually drinking the seawater. Let's each be asking ourselves, where am I carelessly drinking in false teaching, drinking in values and ideologies that are contrary to Christ, and which actually work against God's call on my life, his call to not shift from the hope of the gospel? We need to be discerning and always growing in discernment. So the third temptation is false teaching. The fourth and final thing that can distract us from the hope of the gospel, at least the fourth one we're going to mention this morning, is living by our feelings. We are all of us too easily swayed by our feelings. We wake up feeling happy one day and so we're very confident that we're saved and God loves us. And then we wake up feeling sad another day and we wonder whether we might not, in fact, be saved or loved by God at all. But the truth is, our feelings have no bearing at all on whether or not we're saved. It sounds so simple, doesn't it, to say it? It sounds so obvious. But I think we go through a lot of our day not really believing it. Our feelings have no bearing at all on whether or not we're saved. And I've got to defer to Spurgeon here again because I just could not put this better. So I'll just try and read it well. Here's what he says about feelings. Feelings are not the reason why I believe I am saved. I am saved because I trust Christ. And if I were as miserable as misery itself, I should be just as truly saved as if I were as happy as heaven itself. It is faith that does it, not feeling. Faith is precious. Feeling is fickle. Believing we stand firm, but by feeling We are tossed about. True feeling follows faith, and as such is valuable, but faith is the root and the life of the tree lies there, and not in the boughs and leaves which may be taken away, and yet the tree will survive. Some have very joyous feelings. They swim in trances and deliriums, and yet they are all wrong. Rest you on Christ, whether it is bright day or dark night with you. Though he slay you, trust in him. As much trust in him as if he pressed you to his bosom, faith must abide, though joy depart. If your feelings are down in the dust, if you feel as though you could not hold up your head or look towards heaven, never mind that, but cling to the promise. 
feel what you may. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who came into the world to save sinners and good feelings will follow by and by. But just now, your first business is this. He that believeth in him is not condemned. He that believeth in him has everlasting life. Stand you to that hope of the gospel. So in conclusion, the message of the gospel, of Christ and him crucified, the faith once for all delivered to the saints is our only hope. It's our only confidence. It's our only assurance. But it is all the hope and all the confidence and all the assurance that we will ever need. Christ is all we need. In him, all of the fullness of God is pleased to dwell and we have been given all fullness in him. We have been reconciled to him, to God in him. He promises to take us all the way home. So let's resist all of those enticements to look elsewhere. Now that we're safely seated on the plane and we're in the air, all of those other options are just like thin air and emptiness. They are nothing. They are worthless. Let's resolve to keep flying gospel airways all of the way home. And let's do it, not alone, but as God intends us to do it, together. As God's people, as his church, together. Let's keep making the gospel our focus and our foundation together. May it be the thing that we love every week and every day to sing and celebrate and revel in together. The thing we love to hear explained and proclaimed and to talk about whenever we come together. May Christ himself be our hope and our great delight. And may the source of all our confidence forevermore be in him. Let us hold fast to him. Because you know what? He's already holding fast to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope of the gospel this morning. We thank you that it is our sure and certain hope because of Jesus. We stand amazed again that in Christ and through simple dependence on him, you have promised to take us all the way home to you. Father, we thank you that even though we're not home yet, already we are reconciled to you through his sin-atoning death. We thank you that we already have peace with you through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Holy Spirit, we ask you this morning, ask you that you would help us to hold fast to Christ, to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that we have heard. Holy Spirit, please help us to grow down deeper into it day after day in our grasp of it and our appreciation of it. And please help us to resist all temptations to live another way. May our lifelong testimony as individuals and as a church forever be, as the old hymn says, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. In the all-sustaining name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.